Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're listening to Griefcast with me, Cariad Lloyd. Griefcast is a place to talk, share and laugh about the peculiar human process of death and grief. Each week I talk to a different person about their experiences of grief and death as we remember someone that they have lost along the way. Whether it was a long time ago or you've just joined the club. Welcome to Griefcast. Hold up, what was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey Griefsters, I hope you're having an okay week. Um, I left the house today and there was just people everywhere. It was really weird. It's like men queuing outside barbers. And then I live quite near a busy road. There was people like eating carbonara on the side of a road, so desperate they were to have a meal outside, not cooked by them. Um, But it's, you know, at least the sun is shining. Uh, Wherever you are, I hope you're having an okay week. This week's guest is the brilliant Jay Rayner. Um, I don't quite know how to introduce Jay because he does so many things, but I'm sure you'll recognise him. He is a guest on MasterChef, he is a food critic, he's a journalist, he's an author, he's a broadcaster. He has his own podcast called Out to Lunch as well, where he interviews celebrities uh, each week. They have a meal and they've even been having takeaways during COVID. Um, And he's, yeah, an incredibly witty, intelligent man. I felt very lucky that he gave up his time to come and speak to me. Jay came to talk to me about his friend David, who died in a mountaineering accident when he was just a teenager. People may know you from Kitchen Cabinet, which is, I love Kitchen Cabinet so much. But also, of course, you've moved into the world of podcasting and you now do a sort of, it's just sort of a chat over food, isn't it, really? But it's Yeah, I mean, the, the idea is so simple that when it was first put to me by the boss of the production company I produce it with, I kind of went, really? Which was... <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> Take a famous person out to out to lunch in a restaurant Ooh. and chat to them. Yeah, yeah. And I, I suppose what I didn't quite clock was just how compelling that would be. Mm. Um, we control the environment. So obviously in lockdown and COVID, who knows where we are at the point when people are listening to this. Yeah. But we've been doing it via Zoom and sending takeaways. But the majority still have been in restaurants. And so is that how you're doing You're sending them a takeaway and you get the same takeaway or what, you know, yes. the same restaurant? Generally, sometimes. Oh, nice. Uh, sometimes they've been slightly different or they, you know, I, they've had this Turkish and I've had that Turkish. Okay, yeah. Some of them have been absolutely extraordinarily fabulous. Anybody who listens to the Sophie Ellis Bexter episode oh, will so hear her being thrilled by a man standing outside her house shucking oysters in the back of his car <laughs> so they can be delivered in. Thank you, Bob's Lobster. We, we are dependent on the kindness of restaurants who yeah, you know yeah. we plug to the to the skies. But yeah, in rest, when we do them in restaurants, we tend to do it in a private dining room because we can control the sound environment. Mm. We put two microphones up, one over each head, and then there's two producers at the far end. And then we just treat it. And we always say to the waiters, uh, the, whoever's the maitre d', whatever, just treat us as normal diners mm. and text through the whole thing. And what we discovered, in fact, we pretty much discovered it with the pilot, which was with Richard E. Grant. It was fabulous. Um, that the food distracts from the externals. So they yeah. forget about the microphones and they forget about the producers and they just start to talk. And yeah. we have talked about lots of things. We've talked about death. You know, Kathy Burke talking about mm. um, her old her old mum dying when she was a kid. Um, I'm pretty sure Richard talked about his his father being gone and so forth. And they they seem to find the presence of food and also the rituals of the restaurant compelling. Yeah. It, it, it draws them in. Plus, of course, I'm an absolutely staggeringly brilliant interviewer, so it all comes together. <laughs> It all adds up. It all adds up. I loved the, I listened to the Grace and Perry one and I found it really interesting because it just, 
it, yeah, it totally ca- you feel like you're eavesdropping at a restaurant. So you know when yeah. you're you and your restaurant partner are like sort of quiet, and then you tune into this really good conversation, yeah, yeah, and both yeah. of you are like, "Don't talk to me. This is too good." <laughs> uh, well, that's that's what I, I want it to be. I, there is an ideal kind of guest. Um, doesn't mean the others that aren't this don't work. But the ideal guest is one I have a, some knowledge of, yes. or some interaction with, and ideally someone who's been through therapy. <laughs> Those who have been through therapy have a language of disclosure, yeah. and they fall into it actually very, very quickly. Uh, and Grayson ticked both boxes. Um, <laughs> yeah, I thought the way you two, yeah, yeah, the way you spoke to each other was really. Yeah, it sounded really matey in a way I felt like I hadn't heard him talk before. I'm fascinated by disclosure. I want people to tell me their stories. And I think restaurant tables are the most fabulous place to yeah. hear those stories. It's a shame that more, like when you do have, when you do go to therapy, you can't sit there and have food. <laughs> like they make you just sit in a sort of like dull beige room. It'd be quite nice to have oysters uh, served. I, I, I have to say, I've, I've been quite clear. I've only ever had one hour of therapy wow. in my life was with Susie Orbach, so I felt a little bit <laughs> starfuckery there. But um, I kind of worked out what the issue was at the point when I, when I, which was actually to do with how to deal with, it was a point when I was get, developing a public profile in the age of online. Mm. Uh, people will tell you what they think of you. And I yep. started responding to it. No. Um, and, and I'd worked out that the, the issue was not reading abuse. It was putting your fingers to the keyboard to compose yeah. a reply yeah. but I quite enjoyed my hour of talking about myself and, and think you know when I've got some time I might do a bit more of that but then <laughs> oh. I could just talk to you which yeah, is exactly. what this is that's what podcasts have, have become isn't it <laughs> but they are I mean so, actually but they are yeah, you know are. you and I um, one of the things I've discovered doing out to lunch in lockdown is there is an intimacy to Zoom yeah yeah um, we don't know each other we've never met Nope. Uh, but you're about to ask me some extremely personal <laughs> questions. And because of the convention yeah. of Zoom and the podcast, I'm going to answer them. <laughs> I feel really awkward about doing it now, but um, no, yes, I am don't. going to do that, Jay. I feel like when you've sort of pointed out what a doctor's about to do, and they're like, oh, I mean, I was, but <laughs> I'm not sure I <laughs> I'll, should. I'll take now. the rubber glove off then. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but yes, I am going to do that. And I'm very appreciative that you're hopefully going to answer those questions. Um, so, Jay. Who are we remembering today? We are remembering um, a friend of mine from, well, I was going to say childhood. It's adolescence. His uh, name was David. I'm only going to give his first name. Sure, yeah, um, yeah. More out of respect for mm. his, any, I think his sister, and I'm not sure if his parents are still with us because mm. David would have been literally the same age as me. I'm 54, and at that point is when you start mislaying your parents. Mm-hmm. Um, we were mates in reality I look back and think not that long maybe four years mm. but that's a, an ocean of time when you're a teenager yeah that's a that's a firm friend by that age isn't it um, and he died in a mountaineering accident in 1983 wow. in February I want to say February 1983 he would have been 16 mm. um, he was a fabulous person i have very very strong memories of him mm. but i also when you asked me to do this i mean i, I sound sort of you know the hierarchy of grief mm. which i'm sure you've talked about before we always say I, that, yeah there isn't one there isn't one no, but, yeah. there isn't one i could have <laughs> talked about my parents and maybe at some point we will but then that that is a, a natural part of growing mm. older i lost my parents when i both of them had finally gone when i was 47 which feels about right Mm. but there is nothing natural about losing a childhood friend nothing no. at all and was it your first big loss as well was it the first time you really encountered oh uh, people can die I, pretty much only yes because i didn't like my my grand my paternal grandparents and was quite happy when i heard they'd gone um because they clearly didn't make my father happy I'm sorry, that, that's absolutely no, true. No. <laughs> really, that's absolutely You're not the true. first person so, to be, yeah, but that's Yeah, so when they went, it was, uh, fine, okay, well, yeah. that's that issue dealt with. No, David was definitely, definitely very much the first experience of death and grief in any way. And there is an element, you know, I am a parent, I have a 21-year-old and a 17-year-old, so my youngest is older now mm. than David was when he died. And as a father one tends to think of your own children as children a statement mm. of the obvious but I have extremely adult memories of what went on around David dying in a mountaineering accident in 1983 the impact that had upon me 
the depth of my emotional responses to it, my experiences of it, and the way we all dealt with it as friends. Because one of the things that really struck me is I'm pretty sure at the time none of us had any therapy whatsoever. None of us. Yeah. I wasn't on uh, the mountaineering trip. Some of my very close friends were with him. Oh, wow. Um, I mean, I, I, maybe I should just tell you the story. Yeah, sure. Uh, so what happened? He went, he, so he, I'm, I'm going to go back a bit. Mm -hmm. um, we met on a Jewish youth group tour of, I want to say Europe, maybe in Israel. Both not particularly, not observant Jews at all. I think he, his family may have been a bit more observant than mine were, which wasn't hard because mine were completely non-observant. And we became very, very close friends. We were linked by a particular like a music. I played synthesizers, he played bass. We got stoned together a bit. I thought he was hilariously funny. I went to one, this will all become relevant, I went to one particular public school in northwest London, you know, smell my privilege, um, called Haberdashers at School for Boys. I was Boys. just about to say Haberdashers. I'm from North London. I was just oh, about right. to say Haberdashers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Along with all those bloody comedians, David Deal and <laughs> Sasha Baron Cohen and all of that. Although he was younger than me. But I never had much of a social life with the people I went to school with. Mm. I, I felt sort of out, uh, excluded and on the outside. I had quite a big Jewish circle because of Jewish holidays. And then I'd met this guy, Dave, and he went to another school, a public school, a very well-known one called University College School, UCS, uh, on Frognall. Pretty much all <laughs> attended by the denizens of the liberal intelligentsia in Hampstead and Highgate. Mm. They also had a sister school, South Hampstead, which was, most of the pupils there were young women who would have a copy of Simone de Beauvoir in their back pocket. <laughs> the, the, these kids were nothing like anything I knew from haberdashers. They seemed exotic in a certain way and thrilling and they were they were beautiful as well they were, I do remember on my 18th birthday a few years later they all came to a sort of daytime party and my mother looked at them and said who are all these beautiful young people <laughs> she was right she was right Southampton um, girls mate Southampton girls yeah yeah Southampton girls yeah. who did the thing with the hair they had long hair and and they could Flip. sweep it back yeah. and it was always uh, shiny always shiny, shiny. Southampton girls always shiny. so shiny um really was and they were all fabulous people bright brilliant brilliant women bright brilliant brilliant men and they many of them gone on to do well all of them gone on to do brilliant brilliant things and I sort of interacted slightly with his with that school group at that point when he was living. He took me to one of their parties and all of that sort of stuff. Um, they had a mountaineering group and Dave was a mountaineer. And uh, one weekend he went off mountaineering. Now, on the Saturday morning, and this was a memory that has absolutely stuck with me early, my mother knocked on my door and said, there's been an accident involving UCS. It's on Radio 4. There's an emergency number we should call. I remember at the time being absolutely startled that my ma was aware that Dave was on that trip. Mm. In retrospect, as a parent, or with hindsight, which way, you know, having grown and become a parent myself, I can kind of see. Maybe mm. she'd asked me, are you seeing Dave this weekend? And I'd said, no, I, he's on a mountaineering trip. But she called the number, and uh, at that point, they could say that two people on the trip had died. One was a teacher and one was Dave. Uh, there were, I think, nine of them. Um, they were st uh, strapped together on lines of three on a mountainside in Snowdonia. One came off and brought them all down. And a couple of the boys ran and got help. But as I say, one of the teachers died and Dave died. Um, that's a shocking thing to happen. Mm, so shocking. Abs absolutely shocking. And formative for mm. me. In many, many, many ways. Um, when did you find not, out he had died? When was the point that you... Literally that Saturday morning. Oh, I mean, they they, so he, I think they must have come off the mountainside on the Friday afternoon. Oh, my God. And on that Saturday morning, it was reported, you know, the accident was reported on Radio 4. There was an emergency number, and my ma called it and said, I'm so sorry. And there were a lot of details that I, I recall you know he he was he was a brilliant bright kid mm. and the main feeling is that we all moved into adulthood mm. leaving him behind yeah. which is you know i use the word privilege we were privileged mm. we are we had all had the best education money could buy that group of people went on into the world to become doctors and lawyers and actors and writers and i don't know what david would have done um 
but he didn't get the chance, mm. which is, you know, dreadful. And that's what really, really stays with me, the sense of we left you behind. Yeah, and it's very common when someone, you know, yeah, dies young and then as you turn the age, you know, you realise like, well, we're now 17, we're now 18 and you're just leaving them frozen behind. in that, frozen yeah. in that yeah. childhood, teenage years. Were you, um, did you go to the funeral? Was there any kind of ritual well, that you went uh, to? Yes, lots and lots of it. Mm. Um, and actually various elements of Jewish ritual kick in. The first is you may have seen in, we've all seen in dramas, you know, Catholic funeral, someone picks up a handful of dust and throws it onto the coffin. The Jewish tradition, the real one, is not that. It is take a shovel and dig. If you are... A, a, a man over the age of 13 if you've been mm. bermitzford you do it and i remember we were around the grave and it started it took me by surprise because i'd never actually been to the one but for some particular reason <laughs> a lot of old jews get cremated uh, i don't think i'd actually been to a burial um and, uh, until that point and i just remember suddenly standing there in this appalling suit that i had you know 16 year old in the suit um being handed the shovel and having to dig large clods of earth wow. and drop it. And I managed two or three and then pass the shovel back to the next person. So that's the first thing. The second thing, I always get very emotional about this bit, so I'm going to try and keep it together, um, even though <laughs> it's grief cast, so you're allowed to. You're definitely allowed to, yeah. The, the other bit of ritual is what's called sitting shiver. Mm. Now, a lot of um, religious ritual actually has a, a more social community point and the, and the point of shiva is that every night uh, people gather in the house of the deceased to say prayers mm. what that actually means is that the bereaved are never alone mm. traditionally it would mean that you'd also the the community would gather around they'd bring food you know so that you didn't have to cook you didn't have to think mm. of anything <laughs> It, when it gets to the, the much older generation, the grandparents and all of that, people tend to turn up with a box of chocolates, you know. Uh, but, but with David, it was a proper shiver. And I went to every single night. Wow. And I went because I needed to. Mm. Um, and his, all his mates from school were there. And at the end of the first day, the first evening, they came up to me and said, we know you were Dave's closest friend. And now you're ours. Oh. It's ridiculous. This is nearly 40 years. Um, and that's what they did. That's what they did. They said, you're going to be our friend. And they brought me into their social group. And actually what they brought me into was the most amazing social group. And that was what I was bequeathed by David. Um, a new set of friends, a new life, some of whom remain my friend to this day. Wow. And I've always been absolutely staggered by that moment. Mm. And you can see, as I say, almost 40 years later, it still has this intense impact upon me. Partly, I think, because I, we tend to project, as parents, we project onto our own kids and imagine them doing something like that as well. Mm. It's a really mature reaction. <laughs> Staggeringly mature. Yeah. yeah. For those kids to be in that situation and 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 to reach out, it's it, it's touching me because it's so kind in the really truest sense. Yes. Of, it's just yeah. absolute kindness. There's nothing else in that. And they action. meant it. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't just a line. No. It was. Then my phone started ringing. We're we're going to this place. We're going to that place. Come to this pub with us. That was in the day when you could go to yeah. a pub as a sixteen-year-old. Nobody did check. Um, you know, come to this party, and they became. Actually, I suddenly realised I'd found the people I wanted to hang out with. So much so that many of the I keep calling them the girls, but women at, at South Hampstead had assumed that I was at UCS. Wow. And I think there was one afternoon when I even went and took part in a debating society thing <laughs> at that school, and even the <laughs> teachers began to wonder. But they became the focus of my of my social life. And those people who were involved remained friends for a very long time. They have recently, there's been an attempt to see if I wanted to get involved with memorials to the event. And I've always felt slightly uncomfortable with it because it, it involves the people who are actually on mm. that mountaineering trip. So some of, the, some of the, I remember very well that, you know, some of those guys who came up to me and said, you're our friend now, were in plaster casts. Wow. Because they had fallen off the mountain oh, with him. Yeah, and just incredibly kind. 
and it's the kindness that completely mm. kills me completely it's, emotionally it's, destroys me it's actions that are so wrapped up in kindness that are so wrapped up in death like it's stuff like that that just makes you like this, this it overwhelmed me of the humanness of it all of like you know we do die and accidents happen and terrible things happen and then people are so kind and there's so much love and you realize like that is life just this you know yeah a boy in plaster cast having fallen off a mountain reaching out to you it's like your brain almost can't take how human that action is that they were yeah, all in pain absolutely. and they were all in agony I've, and i i always you know i'm not going to claim that we're all still the greatest of friends we come across <laughs> each other simon johnny dave few others um but we all know each other and i i think it's still very much a part of the collective memory i suspect that's why they have more recently have started talking about an event raising mm. a glass talking about it um yeah. and getting into it and i can see exactly why because you know it's an incredibly formative moment I felt yeah. when I was talking about this I, recently to my other half I was saying the one thing I, I feel slight I felt slightly guilty about you know, end up having the conversation with yourself is I did not maintain any contact whatsoever with his family mm. but then again Jesus I was 16 you're 16 I was just <laughs> going to say like it's how, how you know yeah. the mere fact that we processed it together as friends mm. and moved on in life mm. you know I also suspect that I'm not sure how much help it would have been yeah, if, we, if all his mates had come and hung around the house with it, I'm sure some of them did. By the way, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely certain that a number of them kept contact. It's so so. My dad died when I was 15, and you know I, I've had guilt feelings of various things. And I think as you get older, it's so much easier, especially as you said. You know, as you see teenagers, especially you know your children are that age, you start seeing them and go, oh, these are children; these are not adults. But when you, I said, when you, it happens to you, when you are the 16 year old, you're like, I'm an adult. I know everything. I'm it, the, the the conversations and I you know I don't even look back on them in any way and think oh but we were children mm. well I sort of do because I, mm. I have my own but actually I remember it all as extremely adult mm. extremely adult maybe we're all thrust into adulthood a damn sight earlier yeah. than we should have been I guess what I mean year that year actually 83 yeah. I, I was also thrown out of school for getting stoned at a party um and for four months and it ended up on the front pages of all the papers oh my god oh yeah yeah quite the year quite the formative year, the, quite the year. <laughs> yeah yeah i guess what i mean is that you said the fact that you didn't like you, i think when you're a teenager and you're grieving you, there's only so much you can gather on your plate in a way speaking of food and it's like then like you said going to see the family and, and that like yeah you have you're processing it as a teenager with the other teenage boys who who you can really relate to and it must have been so awful awful for that family just absolutely awful yeah i mean there is there is nothing no. worse than the loss of a child no you, it is, you yeah. should not be predeceased by your child and it is as a parent the great you know if, yeah. even if there's no particular reason you know these days both my boys are in their roofs <laughs> been through lockdown it's, it's you know it's hardly likely they're even going to get on the road but you know obviously you think about it yeah, yeah. Um, and I wonder if the intensity of those feelings is amplified by age mm, yeah uh, by seeing your own kids get to that particular point the one the one other thing is I can't really watch uh, dramas about mountaineering and people falling off mountains. Oh God, of course! And yeah. it it destroys me that every every bloody winter, not this one, funnily enough, <laughs> but every winter because there is a climbing season, yeah. February March, people die on mountains in Snowdonia. Mm. It still happens, and <sighs> realistically, you know, if you look at mortality rates, it's it, it's it, it's not something that you can go don't climb mountains. Mm. But I would have had a hell of a problem if either of my boys had wanted to i would have found that very complicated and would have had to let them do it um but i would have found that very very complicated yeah. and, as i say yeah, there, there's there have been a couple of dramas movies yeah, set in yeah, mountaineering, yeah. which i've started watching and gone nope can't do this not gonna happen it's i mean yeah it's too close isn't it i think there's things, yeah, yeah. because of course when you know if you haven't experienced it is a very um specific niche tragic death to have experienced so young so if you haven't been through that, you're just watching a mountaineering film, aren't you? Like, oh, wow, oh, gosh, what's going to happen? But yeah, those things that are... I was very much like that after my dad died. Anything that was like sort of 
American Hallmark movie about like cancer, you know, I'd just be like, can't do it, off immediately. So much of it. And there is so much of it. And often things start and you don't realise, you know what I mean? You're like, oh, this is just about, oh, wait, one of them's got cancer. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome back to Griefcast with Carrie Ad Lloyd. So what, you know, you were all teenagers. How did you process it as, as teenage young men well, at I, that time? I think in reality... <laughs> I think in reality, for me, remember, I, I'm not, I cannot speak no. for the guys who were on the actual trip, who I imagine had any number of levels of PTSD of mm, some kind. Gotcha. Uh, we haven't actually talked about it, whether they had to deal with it or whatever. I moved on in, in life pretty quickly. Mm. And maybe I blanked it out. Yeah. Except that, you know, I've been bequeathed this entire new social life. Mm. brilliant social life uh great kids and great parties and you know we were all skinning up joints like you know there was no tomorrow so i suspect i i, I blanked it out and moved on mm. and moved on very quickly um and i remember that period as being incredibly intense mm. um socially and in terms of who i was and what was going on in my life yeah it's interesting isn't it because it's were all of you filling that space? You know, you know what I mean by getting stoned and partying and like social, social, social. Well, like. I don't even know if that's the case. I mean, it would be nice to say, and then to dull the pain inside, we all went off and got stoned. <laughs> or you're but just I don't teenagers. Think I, I, I think we were just teenagers. Honestly, yeah. cannot speak for the kids who were on the trip. No, no. And, and, and I say that again, but I think we were just teenagers. But mm. I, I am struck, you know, that there was no therapy. Mm. My parents checked in on me. I don't think I, I didn't really have any excuses for you know when I, when I started getting really quite stoned I was quite good at smoking dope in those days I stopped uh, in my first year in university my entire narcotic career took place between the age of 14 and 18 um, <laughs> but even then I you know it was an ongoing thing and I don't think I could even say ah oh, well I was, was grieving and that was yeah, all yeah. it was kind of no no it's just me but as I say in later life I've had this overwhelming sense of what would Dave had become mm. would we still have been friends you know it's, it's quite hard to hold on to very old friendships yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, people talk about it in a romantic sort of way and I have some old friends but when you get to my age someone who's you know you've been your friend for 30 years means you knew them when you were in your mid-20s mm. I'm making myself self sound like Methuselah which I'm not <laughs> I'm 54 but yeah, holding them to those from all the way back. It's an interesting one. And there will be, you know, when this goes out, I'll send a note to various people and say, I talked about this and I seem to have got rather emotional, so have a listen. Did you find that when you got to uni, was, it, was there moments where you remembered him or was it just sort of periodically? Just I think I have remembered him periodically all the way through. Yeah. But more intensely now. Mm. And more intensely now, partly because it's clear my very old mates have remembered him yeah. and, and are dwelling on this a little bit mm. or at least that they are wanting to get together and I'm not sure why I'm resistant but I am I'm, I'm not going yes please yeah what is um, it do you think is something that you find it it's personal well, I, I, you don't want to do it in a group or I I did always f- have this strong feeling that I wasn't there mm. and they were and I can't imagine what that was like yeah you know, I've had descriptions because he lived. He lived for a little while after the fall, and I've had descriptions of that. And I think because I wasn't there, that maybe I feel slight fraud, which mm. is wrong because I lost a, you know, extremely close friend, someone I would spend most most weekends with for years. Um, so I don't know what that's about. Mm. Carrie, maybe I should get therapy. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, I'm a big fan. 
But yeah, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, I can understand that if you weren't there and they were. And then you also, there's that weird, I suppose, you were at the different school. So then you're that slightly, cir- you're circling, like you said. And then after his death, you're brought into that circle. So yeah, maybe it is, like you said, the memorialising of that is, is it still like, do you still feel like the satellite in that position? No, I don't. I don't actually. I think, we're, you know, actually it got the circle got a bit broader particularly as we all then went off to university and and circles into lot i have to say one of them i think this is you know check my privilege and all of that this is one of those hilarious stories which is um i wrote a piece very recently explaining that i've been diagnosed with osteoarthritis in my right hip and i need a new one and um as this diagnosis was happening i happened to run into part of the old crew just on oxford street and we were talking about what had happened he said oh and did you know that marcus is now one of the uh, most renowned hip men in the country <laughs> so i made contact with one of my childhood friends when i was 16 or 17 and said i think i need your services and he is now my consultant and there <laughs> and I, I you know when people talk about connections <laughs> mm. and money and privilege i'm right there yeah um and one of my childhood friends is going to probably at some point stick a knife into me and remove part of my body <laughs> um, <laughs> that's what all those school fees were for those all those school fees years and years ago one day that hip will thank you for this well, yeah that, that's what i'm going to get out of it a hip um well after his you know after this such a shocking tragic incident to go through how do you feel it, like you said, it affected you, it was profound. Like, did, when you got to university, did you feel like you had been through something that other people hadn't been through, or...? I certainly felt that I had life experience, mm. yes. Mm. I felt that something had happened that was significant mm. in my life. Actually, another thing that happened that year, and it does all compartmentalise. I passed my driving test, very shortly afterwards drove the family car into a lamppost at 55 miles an hour um i know and should have died but didn't because i was in a volvo um that's just the case it's not an advert for volvo in those (laughs) days i remember the man coming out the house on this corner and saying oh "Oh, you're lucky you're in a volvo volvo or rover those are the only two cars that would survive that and i um had the first letter of the license plate on my wall Wow. It had come off as a kind of reminder. And I think one of the things of being that age is the sense of immortality. Mm. When you are 16, 17, 18, when you're at university, you're 19, 20, whatever, you think, I am immortal. I can do anything. Mm. I think I had a a sense of mortality. Mm. But I think my approach to that was... You know, to suck the marrow bone from the <laughs> the marrow from the thigh bone of life. I went for it. Yeah. I, 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 and, and not in a, um, you know, as I said, I gave up all the narcs, the narcotics at 18 after make, taking too many mushrooms. All of this is described, some, most of this is described in uh, my latest book, My Last Supper, some of it. Um, if you want, if you want further detail on my, on my terrible <laughs> magic Minos. mushroom trip. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I did grab life by the scruff of the neck mm. uh, and had a kind of sense of being in a hurry mm. I'd chosen the university because it had the biggest student newspaper in the country and an editorship which was a full-time job you had to be elected to it by a cross-campus vote and I was concerned that um, rather precociously that I wanted to be a journalist and I feared people thinking I'd get into where I if I made it that I got there through nepotism because mm. my mother was a famous journalist and so I thought, go to this university, get elected editor, and nobody can question it because it's students are the most cynical people there are. So if you've been elected by a cross-campus vote, you're fine. Um, and it's a very precocious plan to have when you're 16 or 17. Yeah. And it's exactly what happened. It's exactly what I did. I went wow. there and I did work my way through the student paper and I did become editor and that was my, my entree. I have to say, even now, uh, even though my dear mother has died over 10 years ago, I'm still accused of getting where I am through nepotism. <laughs> Which is extraordinary to me. And it took me a while to come up with the line, which was, you know, Claire Rayner was a sex advice columnist in Agony Art. And I always say, I, I have no idea why having a mother who was an expert in premature ejaculation should get you a job on MasterChef. I just don't know. <laughs> but it took me years to come up with that line. It's good. It's um, good. I like it. <laughs> but if I look at my approach, 
there was an urgency. Mm. There was an absolute urgency to grab things. And eventually, it did all cascade in on itself. Uh, I don't use the word breakdown, but I did, in the towards the end of the first term of being the editor, I did suffer a significant depressive episode. Mm. Uh, ended up on the antidepressives. And certainly my old mum's view was that I was suffering from massive amounts of stress mm. and that I hadn't stopped, that I'd gone through being a, a student, furiously into drama into plays but also into being an editor so I was first featured editor then the news editor and then fought an election then got my degree I didn't stop just went straight into editing a paper wow. no years out whatever I was I was the editor I was in my 20 I was 20 at the point when I finally became the editor and that all of that piled in and in retrospect I do wonder whether that urgency that requirement to mm. just get to live going to to live mm was motivated in part in some deeper sense by this feeling that you know life is not necessarily guaranteed yeah i think that's the thing with when you have an experience like that young it's hard to say you know you can't i don't think you can draw straight lines and be like oh it was this and i did this and then this no, but no, no. but it like certainly it's it's like it gets into your cells doesn't it of like this knowledge i think it's a human of like oh there's not much time Oh, right, I've, I've really seen that up close. I, I can't ignore it. I mean, one of the things I should also say is, I, you know, I have written fiction. I've I published four novels, and I'm a writer. And, and as a, even as a writer of nonfiction, one of the things nonfiction writers don't really admit to is that we have a habit of straightening narratives into neat, tidy lines. We're very good at it. <laughs> Currently writing a no. book, feeling like a very seen. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. We, we, we redirect the world into the tidy lines. We love we like. a narrative. And we love it. We love a narrative. Yeah. And so a narrative which says, I went to university and I did everything and touched everything mm. and finally, you know, worked myself into a depressive illness through stress. Uh, because when I was 16, my best friend fell off a mountain and died. Mm. It's very tidy. Yeah, it's, it's tidy. very neat. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so even while I wonder, say it out loud, I also wonder if I'm being a bit facile and mm. trite. Yeah, I know. I mean, I'm, a, I'm obsessed with narrative and I'm obsessed with... Are you writing fiction or non-fiction? I'm writing non-fiction about grief, <laughs> about right, death okay. and grief. Um, and, I'm, and we talk a lot about it on the show. I think that narrative can be really helpful for grief because I what's, think sometimes happens is people don't have a narrative and so they can't put things together. And I think it can be really helpful to just give them a narrative like this is when the death happened, this is how you felt, this is why. And I think often grief, grief throws narrative everywhere. It's just like um, splatters the paint everywhere and so mm. you can't see anything. And it, that's what I think they mean by time heals. What they mean is the further you're away from all the paint splatter, you can be like, oh, I see, actually, yes, all these things are connected. But narratives are great. Mm. I, and even if they're false. Yeah, yeah, they're actually, helpful. It's like placebos, isn't They're it? ours. Yeah. It doesn't really matter. No, um, but you're right. It's, you, you can't... It, it would be facile to just be like, oh, that's the reason this happened. Yeah. You know, I, I, my parents' deaths mm. were very not, um, very straightforward mm. in certain ways. They weren't necessarily tidy, but they were very straightforward. Um, I can tell lots of stories about them, um, and I quite enjoy those stories because it's about two people who reach the end of their lives. My mother would would dearly have liked to live a bit longer. She died at 79, um, but though, frankly, given some of her pathologies, that was good going. And my dad made it to 85, um, and I think he'd lived on as long as he really wanted to without her. Mm. Uh, and there are narratives there, but I don't feel the need to create stories around that. Mm. They're, they're very manageable and, and they're great. Um, yeah, it's inter when they I was, work. When I was talking to Philippa Perry, actually, and she was talking about her father's death, and, and we were, again, sort of getting into narrative, and I think, like you said, that a lot of the need for narrative comes when there is... Not co complicated grief is a technical term. I don't mean that. I mean like, like you said, when things happen in the wrong order, or it's a shock, or it's you know, it, it's a very mm. traumatic death. And then I think narrative because then it's chaos. Whereas I think yeah, yeah. a parent dying, as you said, when you're at a reasonable age for a parent to die, there yeah. at a reasonable. It's not on. You know, it doesn't mean it's you're. You know, you're not weeping for joy. It's sad, but it's not a a, a terrible shock. I think is the key. The, yeah, it's not a terrible shock. There's also something else. I I did communicate with a very close friend of mine who recently lost a parent 
And I'd, I'd known that it had been going on for a very long time. And I sent her a, a text to say, look, I'm really sorry. Your old mum's gone. And here's something very few people are allowed to tell you. You're also allowed to feel relief. Mm, yeah. Because when a, a very ill, sick parent dies you can feel relieved yeah, it's over yeah, yeah. and I've always said because at one point uh, because my both, both my parents I'm not sure why this was but I think I lost both lost both my parents died I hate the some of the euphemistic language mm. around it both my parents died um with a relatively short period and I felt like I'd been through it and uh, the one thing I've always said is the dying is the worst mm. the, having died is much easier <laughs> yeah the act of it the act of it yeah yeah. The, the the whole process leading up the will they won't they the drama the mm. narratives and all of that stuff is is hard is hard to deal with mm. once they've gone that's much easier to deal with but obviously with David it's a totally different thing yeah completely different I I spoke to him on the phone on a Thursday he went off on a mountaineering trip on a Friday and then he was dead yeah and I never spoke to him again and then lots of other things happened mm. and that then the death is the thing that you have to deal with. Yeah, I think especially when it comes to accidents and tragic accidents and something very shocking, just something really, really shocking. And that's when I think narrative is magical because it can it can bring you out of the shock and ground you back down and be like, mm. I see, this was the beginning, this was the middle, this was the end. Okay, that's what happened to me. Because I think so much part of shock is what just happened, what just happened, I don't understand, I don't understand. But yeah, I think the relief is, we talk about that a lot on the show, of like, of course, of course, if someone's in pain... And now they're not in pain. How is that not a re- how is that not a relief? How like if you love them and they're not in agony anymore? That's and again, it doesn't mean you're you're oh brilliant they died. I'm so happy, but I'm glad they're out of that situation. There's something else to be said, and it's relevant to COVID, actually. And it's a quiet conversation that I think people of my age, whose parents have died, tend to have, which is it can also be liberating. Mm. Mm. Um, when you get, uh, you know, the last thing I would ever, ever wish for you is that you, your father dying at 15. That's terrible. Yeah, it's a, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a whole psychodrama over there in the corner, uh, which and I'm hoping the book is really helping. <laughs> or just doing this every, yeah, every yeah. you know, every few days. But when you get to a certain point when you're, you know, you're a middle-aged person and they've both gone... And you love them dearly, but mm. they're no longer there. There is something liberating. Mm. You move on to life. And both my wife and my parents have gone. And we both agreed as COVID happened, oh, thank Christ they're not here. Mm. Because this would have been an utter nightmare. Yeah. And I know it has been an utter nightmare mm. for people with elderly parents and managing the isolation of yeah. uh, of an elderly parent that you care about very much that you can't see and you can't take the grandparents around and all of that sort of stuff and then you're worrying about comorbidities and all the illnesses yeah. they already have and all of that stuff and well is that what's going to carry them off mm. and um no i haven't had to have any of that we've had the <laughs> so, same yeah the same com- my I, I, can i just say by the way my my parents would be in their 90s now yeah. if they were still alive so it's not like i'm i'm delighted hey they've got <laughs> they would have been very very old yeah no and i my husband's lost both his mum and his dad and yeah we had the same conversation of you know or i think everyone is having you look and you you think god like how would we have coped because yeah they would have been in their 80s and they lived you know very remotely and all of these things you start you can't help but be like oh thank god we're not having to deal with that and for those people who are obviously your heart goes out to them because this is having an elderly parent anyway is a stressful anxious anxiety inducing situation and what we're dealing with now is yeah an insanity a complete tragic insanity that no one's ever dealt with before Mm. i'm just wondering in these covid times how you feel about your own mortality like how do you, you said as you're younger, like, you know, you burnt and you lived and you lived like how now you have reached a grand old age, not Methuselah, but it's not, <laughs> no, no, it's not bad. It's not bad. 54. Um, like, how do you feel now? Is um, it something you worry I, about or not really? Well, I, I do have cause to, mm. I, I, a, a very, very dear, dear friend of mine died only a couple of years ago at roughly my age, mm. cancer. Um, and that brings it home to you. Mm. As this disease, you know, floated around, it became very clear to me very quickly that large men are high up the list. I don't have any other underlying right. uh, issues, no mm. diabetes, no heart blood pressure. And I am, um, 
I'm going to do this shamelessly. There's a uh, uh, an exercise. Oh, you got the exercise. Good work. Good work. Uh, I've, I, yeah, I've got the apex. <laughs> um, I, you know, I've, I have a very hefty gym habit, so I'm, I'm fit. But it was very much in my mind mm. that there is a risk. It still is. I mean, really annoyingly. My wife is four years older than me. She's had the jab. Oh. I haven't. I'm still waiting. <laughs> oh, no. Um, they said I they know, start going over 40s. You should have been done by now. Uh, well, I mean, at what point are you allowed? They did, I seem to recall, at one point say, if you're over 70 and haven't had the call, please get in contact. Right, yeah. So I'm waiting for that shout. <laughs> but I am, I am mildly <laughs> resentful. <laughs> That's fair enough. Um, but, yeah, I, you know, I have, like, I'm, I have life insurance, so mm-hmm. should I die over the next few years my family would be properly provided they'll be fine anyway but there'll be there'll be a lump sum um i've thought of all of those things and it has been very real Mm. actually um i'm not keen on dying yet (laughs) i've quite got a lot of things i want to get done yeah you still I, got that know. burning, I feel. It's still like there's still like there's <laughs> well, stuff I, I, to be done. There's stuff to there's be stuff done. There's stuff to be done, and yeah. I'm you know I like life. I like mm. sorry, it's a statement of the obvious, um, but I'm I'm not sanguine about it at all. I'd be livid, absolutely <laughs> livid. So yeah, I'm 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 aware of it. I'm very conscious of it, mm. and and this is the point when you get into your fifties that you you start hearing, you know, a friends dying of cancers and things like that. It just happens. Yeah. And yeah it's infuriating yeah it's, um, it's it's straight as you know someone who lost a parent very young i suppose i how old was he he was 44 which is why i think 54 is a pretty good age so i'm like oh 54 <laughs> well what you would have done to get for another 10 yeah, years yeah yeah so sure. to me yeah. like i always i have a sl- complete and it's you know it's rare it's rare for someone to die at that age you know my you know he died of pancreatic cancer which is the fifth yeah. most common cause of cancer but to not for someone to be a teenager and lose a parent it is it is unusual in inverted commas obviously it happens um and so my what i'm trying to say is like my parameters are completely skewed so i you know when i meet people and they say oh gosh you know like oh you know what it's like you get into your 50s and our parents are dying and i'm like what do you mean you get into your 50s I'm like i'm completely my sense of it's completely warped so i'm reaching i'm nearly i'm god i'm in my late 30s and i'm reaching the age where some of my friends are starting to lose parents Mm. and yeah you know and the shock of it and being like oh gosh I, you know I never realised and it's just we say on the show all the time like I just got to the club early so that's the thing and I, I wonder you know like you said with David and you just become aware oh, that I things got, can happen I definitely got to the in a sense I got to the club very early yeah 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 uh, because the significant thing is that the bond I had with David was one of pure friendship yeah he was a mate a proper mate mm. And for a mate to die when you're 16. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's mad. It's rude. It's rude. <laughs> it's, just, it's rude. It's, <laughs> I totally it's, agree with you. It's wrong. Yeah. Um, and I have a tendency to flippancy to get the laugh. Mm. So I just want to be absolutely clear. I grieve for his parents and his sister mm. uh, and wonder the impact on them. It, it was a monumental event Yeah. in everybody's life. But we have, as a group, gone on, ignore me, they, they've gone on to do remarkable things. Mm. Great group of people. But like you said, it, it's it, it's life and death all wrapped up and together. There's this wonderfulness that happens, these brilliant people. And then, of course, you can't help but think about him and what he would have done and all of those things. And, and like you said, there's, you know, we can romanticise that narrative and who who knows, who knows. And, yeah, I have it with my dad as well. You know, it's it's easy to be like oh if he had 10 more years but also like he could have had 10 more years and we could have had a huge fallout and never spoke like who who knows so you kind of we we are allowed to be in charge of our own imaginative yes uh, imaginary narrative we're allowed (laughs) to do that yeah yeah, Uh, and i am more than allowed he was bright he would have Mm. got greater levels he would have got he may have gone to oxbridge uh still can't say what he might have done it's a bit weird that but i can't say oh and he was definitely destined to be an x or a y I guess at 16, like, not many kids do know. Obviously, you clearly had this journalist part. Uh, I did, yeah. uh, and I knew I was slightly peculiar in that <laughs> in that regard. It was yeah. already clear in my head that was what was going to happen. That was partly, I have to say, because I'd worked out... I, up to that point, I thought I was going to be an actor. And then I realised that an ability to remember lines and show off was not the same thing. <laughs> so many people never reached that conclusion, Joe. <laughs> 
<laughs> what people are in the business. Yes. I've got a, yeah, I mean, do you know, the funny thing is, this is completely off, off topic, but I have quite a few friends who are actors and, and, and very successful, some of them, very successful indeed. And the older they get, the more suspicious they seem to become of what they do for a living. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, I've had conversations, I'm talking about people who played leads for the RSC who've been in big Hollywood movies. And I said, so what are you up to? And they went, oh, pretending. <laughs> uh, I just want to ask just one last question before we finish. Is So just because I think maybe it's useful for future. At your funeral, have you thought about what food should be served? I'm really annoying on this, okay. Gary. You don't care? I don't care. I Poppy don't care gone. at all. I don't care at all. But what don't you... See, I mean, look, so many I would people love... say this, but I'm like, but for your family who are then planning, going, what should we serve? Like, is there one well, thing... It's their fucking you're... problem. I'm dead. <laughs> Do you know, here's a hilarious thing, one, one other story. My, my mother, at one point, towards the end of her life, got quite um, exuberant with her funeral plans. Right. And she would say, I want, at one point she said, I want my body left in a wood. <laughs> I want to be drawn in a horse, you know, horse-drawn oh, carriage, God, yeah. plumed carriage. I want this, I want that. And, uh, and I remember getting a phone call from, I think it was the Daily Mail after Claire had gone, saying, we understand that your mother would like to be left in a wood. And I said, look, mate, the thing is, she changed it all the time. <laughs> she, she loved fantasising about her own funeral. So we really haven't decided. And anyway, she's gone. It's up to us. Yeah. And I feel exactly... Okay. Yeah, but for what it's worth, it was a, a very simple wicker basket and um, through the crematorium at Butchie and it was all fine. Uh, gold is green, rather. Um, so, no, I, I, I'm sorry, but I, I, I genuinely... I'm a, a head-banging atheist. There is no God uh, as far as I'm concerned. So when I've gone... I mean, I'd like to imagine it would be full of people weeping and wailing and maybe you know mysterious women throwing red roses onto my coffin and swanning out but it's not going to be like that but um but no that's, but that's a fantasy for the living i know i have absolutely no. I, no no jay thank you so much for talking to me it was it was really really lovely and thank you for remembering david today as well because i feel like we did that as well so i think we did that properly thank you very my pleasure much. thank you for having me You can follow Jay on Twitter at jrayner1, J-A-Y-R-A-Y-N-E-R-1. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Griefcast. The show was edited by Kate Holland. Music was provided by The Glue Ensemble. Someone said I say it so quick, they never heard. It's The Glue Ensemble. You can buy their music if you head to thegluensemble.com. And was recorded uh, in lockdown from my living room and Jay's office, I think. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, you are not alone. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started